Hey, everyone. It's Rebecca. I want to chat with you about my book, which comes out June 15th, entitled Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage, and Success. I wrote this book for you, my listeners who might be considering different paths, trying to find ways to innovate, in general, seeking a road that maybe hasn't been traveled. So over the last 15 years, I've learned so much. I have failed so much. The one thing that I've consistently done is when I was scared, I did it anyway. So I want to encourage you to buy the book. Please pre-order it. It actually truly helps an author when you pre-order, especially right now with so many stores not ordering inventory and uh, needing pre-orders to ensure the sales. So you can go to Amazon, look for Fearless, Rebecca Minkoff. You can go to Books A Million, which has an incredible list of independent bookstores. Buy the book. And the good news is, is if you buy the book and email me, fearless at rebeccaminkoff.com with your receipt, you get the cost of the book as a credit applied to whatever you buy on my site. So it's a win-win. Buy the book. It's called Fearless unlocking the new rules for creativity, courage, and success. Hey everyone, you're listening to Superwomen. Today's guest is Jesse Hempel, the senior editor at large for LinkedIn and the host of the Webby-nominated podcast, Hello Monday. For the past 17 years, she has been writing and editing features and cover stories about the most important people and companies in technology. Most recently, she was head of editorial for Backchannel and a senior writer at Wired, where she profiled Dr. Fei-Fei Li and covered Uber's attempted comeback. Jesse, I'm so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's great to chat with you, Rebecca. So I'd love to go back because whenever I see someone who covers the most important people, companies, technology, you know, I would call you a storyteller, right? You're able to take something that the individual might not see within themselves and bring it into something that is really passionately written and and told. But I'd love to start, like, when did that begin for you? Gosh, when I was born, I guess. Uh, Rebecca, I am so grateful that you call me a storyteller because I've struggled so much recently with what to call myself because I always knew that I wanted to be a writer. It was the thing I wanted to do since, you know, the third grade when I won the school writing contest. It was imprinted upon me that that's the thing that I did. And this telling stories was fine, but really it was because I love to write. And when I finished school, I looked around and my friends had started to go to graduate school. And I thought, well, I need to pay my bills now. And I remember I had a poetry degree and I was at a Barnes & Noble which at that point was the big giant bad guy to all of the little bookstores. Um, Of course, that flipped when Amazon came along, but this was the 90s. And I looked in that big book of starting salaries that they had in the financial section of Barnes & Noble, and I looked up poet, and it said $12 a year. And I thought, well, I'm definitely not a poet. What else can I be? And that is how I I got to journalism, honestly. I wish it were sort of a sexier story than that. But that is why I chose to be a journalist, because I could get paid to write. And that is what I was able to do for, gosh, a decade and a half. I really – and I loved it. I started my career at Time Asia and then went to Business Week and then spent a long, formative time at Fortune Magazine and then at Wired. And during that time, I was really lucky in that it kind of worked out, Rebecca. I – I was able to write and get paid to write, and my opportunities grew, and the stories that I got to work on grew until uh, a couple years ago when I, I hit this wall where it was just really time to make a change. 
And now, two years later, instead of being a magazine writer who writes about technology companies, I am a podcast host who tries to tell stories with audio about careers. Suddenly, everything is different. But when you frame it as a career about storytelling, somehow it seems to make more sense to me. So thanks for that. You're welcome. I mean, I think that we, we've all had those decisions of something not quite working and then needing to make a change. You know, I've experienced that with the many different roles I've had within my company. I'll never forget my brother telling me it's not what you want to do. It's what you're best at, which is it's a tough nut to swallow when you're like, cool, okay, I guess I'll go do that thing that I'm really good at, but I'm more passionate about something else. What was that moment like for you when you, and why did you have to make the change? Was it that the climate had had been altered so much? What was it? Well, there were, there were sort of two big things that led to the change. And one was professionally. You know, I worked in media and that thing that you said about how like you realize that there are th- things that you're great at and then there are the things that other people perceive you to be great at. I'd kind of hit a wall with what I could do with my writing. I Sure, I wanted to be the Pulitzer Prize winner for The New Yorker, and I wasn't. And I had to deal with the fact that I probably was never going to be, at least not on that path where I was at Wired Magazine. And I looked ahead of me, and I couldn't really see any job in the media industry and at Condé Nast that I wanted. I didn't want to become an editor. I didn't know how to grow. And that feeling, I don't think that it's about writing in particular. I think that it happens to anybody who gets to a place in their career. That feeling of staleness when you look around and you can't figure out how to grow anymore, it can be really frustrating. And it can be particularly frustrating when the rest of the world is fine with what you're doing. So there's no need for you to make a change. You haven't been laid off. You haven't been fired. Like It's it's going along pretty well. But inside yourself, you're feeling stifled. You just You don't feel like you're growing. I don't know if that resonates for you at all. Yeah. I mean, people say to me all the time, what would you do if you weren't a designer? And, you know, I go, uh. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there was this other thing too, that that second part, right? And that was entirely personal. And it was, I was about to have a child. My wife was expecting a child and we had a very, very tough pregnancy. Um, We were expecting twins. And toward the end of the pregnancy, we lost one of the babies and it became clear that we were going to have a stillborn baby and a living baby. And it threw everything into relief. And I suddenly thought every moment of my life needs to matter. Like it's my very last moment. Mm -hmm. I have to be doing the most important thing that I can be doing. And I have to prioritize my family. And I looked back at my career and I should say Wired Magazine and Condé Nast, they were actually great to me during this very hard personal time. But I just realized that I didn't have any life to waste. I needed to run right at a new challenge, even if I didn't know that it was going to be great, even if what I was doing was fine. I needed to try the new thing. And and so in the space of a month, I took a job at a technology company in a new industry, hosting a podcast that didn't exist yet, and also became a parent for the very first time. It was a very crazy month, Rebecca. Oh my gosh, it's like all all vectors at once. Yeah, that's true. So do you think that between your desire to change just because there was no other role that you saw wanting and the extreme, you know, shift in what you had thought was happening with your family that was 
obviously, uh, I, I think as a mother, the empathy of hearing that no partner would ever want that to happen. Do you think that sort of bolstered you, you know, full force into change without much thinking about your history? Or did you dive in and go, ooh, should I have done this? You know, should I go back to the comforts of what's familiar when everything seems like in upheaval? A little bit of both. But really what it came down to was I had been writing about technology for my entire career. And I had increasingly become better and better at putting my own thoughts and opinions into that work, right? If I began writing about, let's take Facebook, a company that I wrote about for the first time in 2005. My first interview with Mark Zuckerberg was when he was still at Harvard. Those stories were business stories. They were straight up business stories. But over time, as I grew as a writer, I began to infuse my own opinion, my thoughts, what mattered to me into those stories. And so I was writing about the same characters, the same companies, for example, Facebook, but they were culture stories and they were people stories and they were stories about the themes that mattered to me. And when my child arrived, my son arrived, who survived, and at the same time, my son arrived, who didn't survive, I looked at them and I thought, well, I don't know why. I, don't e- I can't even articulate this exactly, Rebecca, but I thought I can never again write about things that don't matter to me. I can never again write about things that aren't coming from my heart, my thought, my perspective. And that extends to stories and the stories that tell. Like I have to get to the meat of things. And that was really the opportunity that I had with Hello Monday. You know, LinkedIn said, come in, host this podcast. We want you to talk to professionals about their careers, about the future of work. We want this to be your voice. And I saw the opportunity to host the kinds of conversations about the things that mattered the most to me, certainly, but I believe to people and in particular women trying to navigate their careers. And that that's really what catapulted me into feeling brave enough to just take on something entirely new. When you tell these stories and you add the human element into it, which often is what makes it readable. It makes it desirable. You know, I think everyone can read a business story and snooze until they they get a facet of the founder or the person being interviewed, you know, as human. How did you evolve that skill and how do you draw it out of people? Because it is a skill. Um, sometimes I'll listen to some of my podcasts and I'm like, I really could have gone a lot deeper with this person than I did. And it's something yeah. I'm still trying to learn. I love that you asked that question because of course you are deeply involved in the process and the skill of the interview. And you're a beautiful interviewer. Um, And I know because I I listened to your show. And of course, since we were going to talk, I've listened to a lot of episodes recently. (laughs) And that's the first thing, right? And I know that you know this. Like the first thing, and I think women are particularly good at this, is to show up prepared. When you get time with a person, to treat them as importantly as you'd want to be treated and to take the time to to study up on them and begin to understand what they might be motivated to talk about, what matters to them, right? Because I show up and I want to talk about the things that that matter to me, but an interview is going to be great. It's going to be fabulous. If I can stumble into that moment when I've hit on the thing that a person wants to tell you, their truth, right? And and the surface truth is, you know, you and I just had an interview um, and it will be on Hello Monday. Like the surface truth, the thing that I really want to talk to you about was, well, what was it like to run this business over the course of the last year? Um, and we started there, but very quickly we got to meatier things, the things that you were thinking a little bit more about or that you had like deeper ideas about. When you can get into the flow of that, that to me is what makes a, a story just 
pop and become important. Yeah, I wholeheartedly agree. I think my interviews became better, not that they're perfect in any uh, sense, but when I threw out the questions that I was like, I'm going to go in this order. And when you let it sort of morph and become a conversation, I think that's that's definitely for me been freeing, but also more authentic to the conversation. Well, and it speaks to listening, right? And listening is this undervalued trait. And if you're a good interviewer, then actually what you are is a good listener. Yes. You get out of the way. Yes. Right? And I'm just, I'm just going to st- say, I, I know that I'm going to listen to my conversation with you, Rebecca, because I'll tell you, I was a little bit, I was nervous. And I will listen and think, why did I talk so much? Why didn't I just get out of the way and listen more? Oh, I disagree. I think that I like it. Like there's obviously too much. Like there's a number of podcasts I've unsubscribed to because I'm like, can you let the person talk? But I didn't feel that way about our interview at all. I, I think you added a shade or a nuance to what I was saying that I, that I wanted to hear. So I think it, that's different. So I think that also by the time this, this comes out, um, at least right now, the subject of technology is a conversation that is on everyone's mind. Now that I have you held hostage here, really curious to get your thoughts on, you know, is technology becoming too powerful? Is it, is it its ability to censor people, good or bad, you know, overreaching? Have companies, you know, amassed too much power and just would love to hear, you know, your thoughts as someone who's been in this world for a long time? Oh, well, I live and breathe this question, Rebecca, this question of whether technologies have, companies have too much power. And yes, they do. They have too much power. In fact, most technology companies at this point are in small and large ways, both because they mean it and because they are in some ways pandering to us because they knew that power will be limited soon, are feeling they have too much power. And I really saw that as we watched what happened in the wake of the events at the beginning of the year on January 6th, as companies raced to try to figure out well, okay, if people are using our platforms to communicate about things that not just that we don't like and not just that are causing pain or causing uh, people to lose money, but in fact, things that are perhaps inciting violence, what then? What do we do then? And my, my chief thought and my chief fear, and I'm curious if this was your reaction too, was these are the wrong people making these decisions. It's not that I doubt the decisions they're making. It's that I look back and I think, how did we get to this point right. when a small handful of people whose background and experience never prepared them for this are deciding who gets to speak? It's terrifying. Yes. I, I do find it terrifying. Obviously, I, I don't think any any platform should be used to incite violence. But then I go, well, what about – there are so many other areas where there's been somewhat of a turned head, you know, whether it be – the sex trade or set or slave modern day slavery, right? Where, you know, you don't see mass shutdowns of some of those things. And I, and I guess I feel like no platform should incite violence, but no platform should be able to deplatform. <laughs> you know, it, it just bodes, it bodes scary for the future for me. And, and again, I think that these people were never trained to handle this. It was probably never a thought in their mind. They were going to have to make that call. I fully agree with you. And I think that we are at this like awkward adolescence of the internet that is extremely painful for all of this, right? Like, couldn't we have seen this coming and yet we didn't? And here we are and we can look back all we want at how we got here. But what we actually need to do now is to pilot ourselves out of here in some way to a 
place where more civil discourse is supported, where everybody gets to weigh in on how that civil discourse is supported. And truthfully, I don't know what that path is, but I do have an incredible amount of conviction that humans are going to be able to figure that out. We just will. And maybe it won't be me alone. It won't be you alone. But we're going to figure this one out because we have to. Yeah. Agreed. So being that you have such a powerful platform and you're part of, you know, LinkedIn, one thing that I that also alarms me is the mass exodus of women out of the workforce. Yeah. And the lack of support that they're getting from many of the companies that want to hire from your platform. And I'm just curious, you know, what you think more needs to be done to say we're losing, you know, whatever, I think the last number was 800,000 women have left the workforce. My my hope is all these women start companies, right? And we reignite more and more female-founded businesses. But what do these companies have to do from your perspective being that, you know, you you see and interview a lot of them to better support women, to, to ensure they don't leave? I think that this is the most critical question that we have taken on at Hello Monday in the past year. And we've taken it on in so many different episodes. I couldn't just hand you an episode to listen to. It's a current that runs through our programming. What is happening for women? What can companies be doing differently? How can we support women? And the place that we get stuck from my point of view is right at the top of that conversation. We had a woman on our show named Carol Fishman Cohen talking about career breaks. And that is a great place to start if you are a woman and running up against the brick wall that is trying to navigate a career and also trying to navigate the many demands that may be put on you from other places in your life. That looks at like how to relaunch a career. And I would love to talk about that a little bit with you, Rebecca. But before we even launch into that conversation, I kind of think we need to start by letting women know that whatever they're confronted with, this way of thinking about your career, it's very difficult. It becomes a personal and a political statement at the same time, right? So you have some women who are not working right now because their jobs disappeared. The industries that were impacted and that often were hardest hit over the last year were industries dominated by women. You have other women who are not working right now because they simply felt that they had to step out of the workforce to care for their families. Maybe their children weren't going to school. Maybe they had a parent who had COVID. There are so many different reasons. And those women are carrying on their shoulders the burden of being one of the women who stepped away. I remember one listener wrote to me and she said, can you just do an episode on this? Because I really want to quit my job, but I just feel so guilty if I do. And so I feel like you need to start this conversation by letting women know that they alone are not responsible for the women's movement more broadly or what happens to women broadly in the workplace, that they can make the decisions that are best for their families. It sort of says, oh, women leaving the the workforce is more detrimental than women doing what they need to do. In some cases, that's best for their family. Right. I think some of the, you know, uber feminist women I speak to, which I don't necessarily agree with their view on this is, well, my partner isn't doing it. So I have to. And I'm like, well, you, your partner, watch that baby come out of you. You better have a conversation with your partner about taking on an equal load. You know, like sometimes I feel like we're being too victim uh, about the belief that like have the conversation, you know, uh, Eve Rodsky has an incredible 
book, but she also has playing cards that you literally divvy out to see where it's even and where it's not. And those are not easy conversations to have. But look, Rebecca, the other thing that happens a lot for women in the middle of their careers is that their careers stop being so fulfilling for them. Right. And Mm -hmm. so in those moments, when you are in the midst of a pandemic and your career is kind of a slog and not as lovely as it felt like it might have the potential to be 10 years ago when you got started and your children are small and somebody in your household needs to be picking up more, you may want to take a step back and spend that time with your children. And I think we also need, we owe it to women to say, okay, if that's what you want, like you get to make that decision. That's part of what the women's movement was designed to do. We owe it to women to at least say, this is a choice and we're going to honor the way that you make the choice. And I say that because I think that then you can move directly to the next part of that conversation, which is let's plan for this. Like, what are we thinking about? Are you are you going to choose to do this for six months? Do you actually want to be challenged more in your career? Let's come up with an off-road and an on-road to you for this moment. And that, that is a much more productive conversation than asking women to stick with things that aren't working for them or bringing them joy simply because we really need women to stay in the workforce. Yeah. I think that's an incredibly on-point perspective. And even one I hadn't considered before, like we're asking people to do things they no longer want to do. It's like if someone had said to you, you should keep writing because that's what we need you to do. We can't have writers leave. And then you would have never had this podcast or probably a more flexible schedule, I'm assuming, uh, to be able to spend with your family. Well, Rebecca, I'll tell you something about my life personally, which I'm just connecting the dots about right the second as we talk. But you know, I'm a, we're a two-mom household, which is really interesting because we have two different women, and both of us have really different perspectives on our careers. And um, we have a two-year-old, and my wife is expecting. She also lost her job in the fall. Uh, it became clear that she was going to be laid off. And that is – she is like just one example of how women are falling out of the workforce. For her, it was because she was going to be laid off. We have the good fortune at this moment in our career that if she wants to take the time – we can afford for her to take the time. and But that never even occurred to me, Rebecca, because I live in my world and I love my career. I am like, I'm so in it. I love my work. And so I immediately jumped to, okay, well, well, what are you going to do? Should we get you a career coach? Who are you going to talk to? Like, where's, where's the front door for you here? And she had to school me. She was like, well, I don't know if that's what I want. And you need to be okay with me wanting something different. And it was really hard for me to get my head around. For sure. And I think those conversations are probably needed in more households right now. Yeah. So I love to end my podcasts with two questions. One of them you asked me, but I altered a little bit. But what is some of the best advice you've either been given or you've learned through your years? And then something we'd be surprised to know about you. It could be a a trick, a habit, something embarrassing or not, just something we'd be shocked Well, when it comes to advice, I actually want to draw from a guest that we had on the show recently. We had this amazing designer. She's the host of her own podcast, Design Matters, Debbie Millman. And she has had just an incredible professional career. She was the president of Sterling Brands for 20 years. And she's created artwork that's shown all over the world. I admire her so much. And so I wanted to know about courage and, you know, confidence. And where did the confidence come from? To, for her to begin to just share her her work. And she her response was so interesting. She was like, oh, confidence is, that's not a thing. Like people think, well, you need confidence to do this. It's not how it works. You just start doing the thing. And that first leap to start doing the thing, well, that, that takes courage. 
And too often when people talk about confidence, they think that it pre-exists. But actually, you need to stop using the word confidence entirely and just think about the courage, the courage to take that one leap. And as you continue to have courage to take the leap, you will look backwards. And when when you're looking backwards, that's when you're going to see the confidence. Ooh, that's a good one. I've been waiting for a good nugget for a while. I love this one. I'm saving this one. <laughs> it's so true. I think, you know, there's this false expectations that like we launch anything with confidence and that's definitely not the case. I launch new things and I close my eyes and I cross my fingers. That's my, that would be my emoji for launching something. <laughs> well put, well put. And yet looking back, you embody confidence in the rearview mirror. Definitely. Someone told me that today and I was like, uh, I, I didn't I didn't view it that way, but okay, I'm glad you think I'm doing a good job. <laughs> <laughs> so then my last question would be, what would we be surprised to know about you? Well, you know, at this point in my life and in my podcast, I talk so much about my son, Jude, and I'm in my 40s. And I think one surprising thing to know, but I think it's a really important thing to know from the perspective of, of managing your careers, is that I didn't want children. I said that with all the love in the world for Jude. He's a great kid. And I'm so glad to have him. But I, I was 40 before I even entertained the idea that maybe my wife and I could think about having kids. And we've been together for a really long time. I simply believe that I could have a very fulfilled life and a very fulfilled career without children. And I wasn't feeling called to do that. And in the end, that changed. It changed because I'm married to a wonderful partner I've been with for a decade. And it became clear to me that she really wanted it. And so therefore, we went ahead and I'm glad I did it. But I believe that my life could have been just as fulfilled and wonderful and rich had I not done that. And I believe that all women who choose not to do that should be really supported in that choice. Totally. I went through similar emotions when I was pregnant and I would text my husband so that my unborn baby obviously didn't get any words, but why did we do this? Why did I rush this? <laughs> I can't believe we like I regret this decision and we can't take it back. Uh, and for me, that changed the minute he was born. I was like, why didn't I do this sooner? How many more can we have? But I definitely think on the spectrum, we go through these cycles of not wanting it, wanting it, never wanting it. The pandemic, I said, has killed my my hopes for a fourth child because I was like, I never want to change another diaper again. We are done. Oh, well, <laughs> so, um, I feel that way too. And yeah, I'm going to start changing diapers really soon. <laughs> You're about to start. Well, this has been awesome. Thank you for coming on. And you're a great, not only interviewer, but guest. I think women will really love this episode. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me, Rebecca. It's great to talk. Thanks for listening, everybody. And don't forget to head over to RebeccaMinkoff.com. Show your love and support for the brand. Buy something for yourself. Buy something for another. And also don't forget to try my new fragrance. Again, it is available at all Nordstrom, Macy's, Scentbirds, and Birch Boxes, as well as our site.